if one takes physicalism to the end, to that, I think, a very literal interpretation, there's no meaning in life. So that's a big deal. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Mark Gober, author of An End to Upside Down Living, Reorienting Our Consciousness to Live Better and Save the Human Species. This is Mark's second appearance on this podcast. I interviewed him a while back when his first book, An End to Upside Down Thinking, was released. Part of what I love about Mark's work is that he's looking at things that many other people aren't, in particular, our view of reality, where Mark explores an idea called materialism or physicalism, the idea that our consciousness somehow arises from the matter and the chemistry and the biology of the universe, where what he explores and argues is that in fact, the very opposite is the case, that consciousness is primary and that matter and chemistry and biology all arise from consciousness. Mark explores these ideas in his book. We talk about them in this podcast. We explore in this interview, synchronicity, free will, the relationship between the absolute to the relative. We talk about non-attachment, how it's different from detachment. We talk about surrender, authenticity. So some things that can seem maybe esoteric, mystical, or philosophical, but I think in a way that ultimately makes them relatable, comprehensible, and actionable. We don't talk much about it in this interview, but Mark's work explores things like psychedelics, telepathy, precognition, near-death experiences, communications with the deceased, children who remember previous lives, reincarnation. So a lot of things that, again, are not currently accepted by our scientific community, but for which there actually is a fair amount of evidence and quite a bit of anecdotal evidence, personal experience. And we talk about the fact that a lot of what Mark shares is not, in fact, endorsed by our current scientific community. But I think, as we all know, if we're honest, the history of science is the history of being wrong. So with that, I hope you enjoy and benefit from this conversation with my good friend, Mark Gober. Mark, welcome back to the School for Good Living. Thanks for having me again. I'm excited to chat. Me too. You know, I loved your first book, An End to Upside Down Thinking, and now you've written a new book, An End to Upside Down Living, Reorienting Our Consciousness to Live Better and Save the Human Species. Nothing, nothing to it, just that, <laughs> save the human species. Before we talk about this book, and I know I asked you in our last interview, what's life about? So let me mix it up and start with a different question, one from your book, what is your overall intention for life? Well, this is the central topic of the new book, and the book builds to my answer. So 
we could start this interview with my general answer because it's kind of a, a lengthy answer. But ultimately, I think life is about service in a sense, that we are serving the whole because we are the whole. So by this is where the, the notion of paradox kind of comes in, because part of serving the whole means perfecting ourself and serving ourself as an individual. So there's, there's this dual aspect of sort of being selfish in that we need to do the best we can for our individual self so that we can be of service to the whole, which is at the same time our true self. Yeah. I, I really like that perspective, and it's one that can sound kind of abstract or esoteric, but this part of what I appreciate about your work is that you make it not only comprehensible, but but relevant. And although you come at this from a perspective of science, you know, you I think you do a masterful job of looking at what research has been out there in a variety of dimensions and then synthesizing and explaining it. But what's underneath all of this, as far as I can see, is this idea of this universality, this commonness, this oneness that we uh, experience. And, and to me, part of what's so fascinating is how this really is what science, you know, where science and spirituality seem to seem to be driving. Right. And and what I'm, I'm really curious to get your view about is, well, you say in your book, you say you talk about the need for reframing reality. What do you mean by that? And why do we need why do we need to reframe it? Because I think the conventional framing is inaccurate. And so the conventional framing, which I, I discuss in at length in my first book and also in my second book, is what's known as materialism. In the second book I call it physicalism. It basically means the same thing that the universe is made of physical stuff called matter, and through the random combinations of pieces of matter over billions of years, hundreds of millions of years, human beings eventually form through DNA, which came about through the random combinations of pieces of matter. And then our consciousness emerged from our brain after we emerged through matter. So ultimately matter creates consciousness and consciousness is basically that which experiences. So anyone listening to this conversation right now, it's your consciousness that is absorbing the experience of listening. So consciousness is pretty fundamental to our everyday experience because without consciousness, we would have no experience and therefore we'd have no emotions. We wouldn't care about anything. We wouldn't have ups and downs. Consciousness is critical. And in the conventional framing of reality, consciousness comes from matter and more specifically, consciousness comes from a brain. And so that is what I ultimately challenge. And the, my first book is called An End to Upside Down Thinking because I argue that consciousness doesn't come from matter. Rather, it's the other way around. Consciousness is primary and matter emerges within consciousness. Yeah, this is one of those, I think, one of these paradigms, right? That we're born inside as a society. We just agree that this is the way it is and we don't question it. And everything that we create or explore begins from that assumption. Of course, consciousness becomes, you know, comes from matter, right? It's, matter becomes more organized that somehow life and consciousness spontaneously arise. Like that's what we say inside our current scientific paradigm. And anything that runs contrary to that seems to just get lumped into this, oh, it's spiritual or otherwise esoteric or mystical. But what I wonder is, you know, well, let me ask you this before I share what I wonder, what's the consequence of that? Right. So say that's our scientific worldview, but so what? The implications are immense for how we think about our own lives. 
if we think that consciousness does come from the brain and does come from from matter, which under this physicalist view, matter is basically inert. There's no meaning behind it. It's just there that it just emerged in this universe somehow. Then if the brain stops functioning, if the body dies, then consciousness goes away because that which created the consciousness, that which is, is required for consciousness to exist, isn't functioning. So there's no consciousness when you die. And therefore, if you think about that deeply, once you die, there are no memories, there are no feelings, no emotions. So when you die, it's over. It's lights out. So does life have any meaning under that context? I think one could argue, and, and this was my prior worldview, is that life had absolutely no intrinsic meaning under this physicalist worldview, because ultimately everyone's going to die at some point, their consciousness is going to go away, and we emerged from random combinations of matter that didn't have any meaning anyway. So we could, we could try to artificially manufacture meaning in life, but ultimately there was nothing deeper to it under the physicalist worldview. And so that's a huge deal. If one takes physicalism to the end, to that, I think, a very literal interpretation, there's no meaning in life. So that's a big deal. Yeah, that that is a big deal. And I, I think you even cite, you know, one of the bumper stickers that I think epitomizes this is he who dies with the most toys wins, right? That in that physicalist worldview or that materialist worldview where consciousness arises from matter, which people don't necessarily, I think, understand that that kind of mentality, he who dies with the most toys wins is like the kind of symptom or result of having that worldview. And the, you know, the irony there is we can get the bigger house, we can get, you know, the, the expensive clothes and the nice vacations, but then we're, all we have is a bigger house or nicer clothes or, you know, the experience of taking an, a more expensive vacation. But yeah, like you're saying, meaning it's not inherent in those things under that worldview, but what's the alternative and how do we get there? Well, I want to take a step back. So why do people think consciousness comes from the brain? Because there are a lot of really smart people who believe that to be true. And there are reasons to start there, which is that I think the main one is that there are correlations between what happens to the brain and what happens to our conscious experience. So let's say someone who has Alzheimer's disease, we can see that their brain has, there's damage to the brain and we see a corresponding change in memory. Or if someone gets in a car accident, maybe they damage the part of the brain responsible for vision. We see a change in or I think about like the studies where scientists will touch a part of the brain and a memory is activated. Exactly. Right? So it's like clearly there's a link between this physical organism and the, the consciousness or the experience. I mean, it seems so evident, right? How could we dispute that? Well, it's a very strong link. The problem is because there, just because there's a link doesn't mean that there is a causal relationship. And the analogy that I always like to use comes from Dr. Bernardo Castrup, who says he's a philosopher in the space. He says, look, when you have a large fire, lots of firefighters show up. You have a larger fire, more firefighters. And we don't reason that the firefighters caused the fire, even though there's a correlation. So in some cases, correlation does equal causation, but not always. And so where we start here is there's a strong correlation, but we can't jump to the conclusion automatically that the brain's creating consciousness. Rather, there's other possibilities. What if the brain's like a filtering mechanism? almost like an antenna that is processing consciousness. And if that were true, that the brain's a filtering mechanism, or in my new book, I call it a blindfold, it's actually getting in the way of consciousness, then we might see phenomena where when the brain is less active, people have an enriched or expanded consciousness. So for example, near-death experiences, people have clearer than usual thinking or more logical than usual thinking when their brain is barely functional or off. 
And there are a number of other cases like that. Savant syndrome, people that have damaged brains have extraordinary capabilities, mathematical abilities, memory. So we see a number of these psychedelics, reductions in brain functioning are associated with a psychedelic trip. And so this would match the idea that, yeah, the brain's related to consciousness, but the real action is beyond the brain, beyond the body. And this physical mechanism of a body-brain system is getting in the way of something much broader. That, again, is such an interesting view to me. And, I mean, it's, it's one of those ideas that I wonder, how long would I have to exist on this planet like without having heard that, before it occurred to me that that was even possible, right? That the brain is actually a filtering or a restricting mechanism. And it was in some of the other reading, obviously, you know, now here we are in, this is June, 2020, as we're recording this and psychedelics are an increasing area of research and interest, you know, for many people. And that was the first time that, that I had heard that, that, that a psychedelic actually seems to limit the brain's function, which is paradoxically, you know, when we have these grand visions or these intense experiences, it seemed to me that something that would have stimulated or somehow you know, activated more of the brain would have been responsible for that. But to learn that that's actually not what's happening is one of those that begins to maybe open a door to a, a paradigm shift. And then, as you mentioned, there's all these other areas of near-death experiences and, and others. So yeah, it's great for me, especially as a coach. I know this is when people change is when what, when they have exposure or personal experience to something they've held as incontrovertibly true. <laughs> and now it just, it starts to shift. But what, so now let, let me go back to that question th and thank you for giving that background, but let's go back to this question. So say that physicalism or materialism is the prevailing worldview. Clearly it is right now. And as a personal commentary here, right? I think it's a big part of why our world is so effed up right now, right? That there's so much unworkability, loneliness and depression and anxiety and conflict and all of environmental de degradation, all of this. But what's the alternative? Because clearly we're not trying to convert anybody to a new religious paradigm, right? And we're not just going to, we're not going to get there through science, which in some ways is perhaps its own fundamentalist religion <laughs> in some ways, right? So if we're going to make this shift that is in fact, perhaps going to save the human species, how does that, how do we do that? How does that happen? Well, you made a number of really good points. And one of one of the ideas that really resonates with me is the idea that personal experience is probably the fastest way to transform someone to un understanding these types of realities. So whether it's psychedelics or meditation or near-death experience, that's when people can have a paradigm shift overnight, whereas the intellectual route can take a longer period of time. But to, to go back to the, this point about, well, the, the alternative paradigm is this notion that consciousness is primary. So everything is consciousness. And the again, going back to Dr. Bernardo Bernardo Castro, it's all, it's like there is an infinite stream of consciousness and we are whirlpools within that stream, meaning we have a sense of individuality, but we're fundamentally interconnected. And that's the key point that we're interconnected. We appear to be separate, but we're actually not at the fundamental level of reality. And that's where I think science is pointing toward. And that's, that's why I start my second book with science. My first book is all about the science because this worldview for me came about by looking at the science. And to me, there was no, there was no other worldview that matched all the data points. So interconnectivity, that is critical 
in a world where separation is so prevalent. And I think the, the idea of separation and the idea that we're finite beings with a limited amount of time here and there are no consequences to our actions beyond what happens in our body, those ideas I think are very destructive, even though, even though sometimes they're not kind of top of mind for people. Those assumptions are so deeply embedded that they govern and, and drive our behavior. So if we, if we behave from a, a place of interconnectivity rather than separateness, I think that would change a lot on the planet. You mean it's not just more laws and more prisons and more punishments and that's not going to get us there? <laughs> I think we would look at everything differently. Everything. So how, okay, so personal experience, clearly, you know, that's the thing, but we're not going to, you know, we're not going to attempt to, clearly we're not going to attempt a situation where we, what do you say, elicit, create a near-death experience intentionally for people, you know, many of us are working to promote mindfulness and meditation experiences. Many people are on the front lines of, you know, psychedelic research and education. So that's something that, that we can do. I'm just thinking, you know, people, I had a teacher once who said, we wake up whenever we wake up, you know? And, and so there's, for me, this kind of sense, and, and maybe this is a passive perspective, but what's the hurry? Like, what's the rush? So say humanity dies. Okay. The earth is here. Life, life as an entity or as a force is humans are gone, but you know, unless we nuked the earth, other life is probably still here. It's probably elsewhere in the universe, you know, like, so what? Say we go away. Who cares? So my view on that gets to, if we go back to this paradigm of, of a universal consciousness that we're all a part of, one of the corollaries to that or an inference we could make is that that consciousness is intelligent because we as individuals are intelligent and we're part of the stream. Therefore, there's some intelligence embedded in that stream of consciousness. And if we take that a step further, if we look at the entire material world as being embedded within that consciousness, then the consciousness would be of some kind of immense complexity. And therefore, it's not a big leap to think that consciousness itself is extremely intelligent, if not infinitely intelligent. So one of the key themes of my second book is the notion of intellectual humility or radical humility is, is the term I use, which is the idea that as individual people in a body with a limited brain, there's not that much that we can actually understand, even though we think we understand a lot. And in my book, I say it's sort of like an amoeba that's trying to understand multivariable calculus. It's just not possible. So when we get to big questions like, does it matter whether humanity survives or not? I don't think we can answer it. I don't think we know. It's possible that it doesn't matter, but it's also possible that at some level of reality, there is real meaning behind what's happening on Earth. And there are cosmic forces, who knows what, something that I don't understand, that wants us to succeed. And it's possible that's not true. So I think I end up at a place where I just really don't know. And I just try to take things one day, one moment at a time and see where my passions drive me. Yeah, I think that's it's a very wise worldview. And, and I'm reminded as you share that, that you talk about the fact that we only know about 4%, what 4% of the universe is, you know, <laughs> the rest of it, we have no idea or very little idea. Right. 4% is matter. 96% is dark matter and dark energy. And those are basically like plug terms for what science doesn't understand. Yeah. That's so remarkable. And I don't remember the British physicist. I want to say Eddington, but I think he said, you know, you, the, the universe is something doing, we don't know what, <laughs> and it's like, you know, we know something is happening. Right. And that again, I mean, part of where I know a lot of these ideas can be very philosophical, but of course, for them to have any practical 
Meaning, A, I think we've got to understand them and B, be able to apply them in some way to our real lives. And, and yet, you know, there's a, there's a way as I hear some of these ideas, like the difference between reality and whatever our experience is through our senses and our intellect, right? That again, I think it would be easy to live. You'd be born, you could be educated, you know, you could grow up, you could get a job and all this and never really spend a lot of time thinking about perhaps there's a reality behind, behind and beyond my experience of reality until, you know, maybe pain. And I think this is a part of the suicide rate that's so high, you know, that if people were aware of even the possibility that there's something more to life than, you know, what's right here in, in front of me. But I, and maybe I'm asking the same question in another way, but how, because there's, there's two parts to this question. The one is what can people do? But the other is what can we do as teachers, as coaches, as leaders, you know, and I know those are, there's probably an overlap there, but I also think there's probably some difference there. So maybe we go to the, what can, what can we do as leaders, as teachers, as educators, as coaches, you know, that kind of thing to maybe accelerate or promote the adoption of this worldview to reduce suffering and increase joy and true prosperity for people. Well, many spiritual teachers would say that by elevating ourselves individually and kind of cleaning up whatever issues we have, whatever impurities we have, and whatever, however you want to define that, the more, the more purified we become, we begin to basically radiate a positivity that has an impact just by being. So as, as leaders who understand these principles and have accepted them, then the work that we do on ourselves can have a radiating effect on others and the world just naturally. So that's, I think, one thing I would say. Then also the way that we act towards people, whether it's in a coaching or leadership setting or just in everyday settings. And this is taking me to the life review phenomenon and near-death experiences, which I think is one of the most profound things I've learned about. This is, again, a near-death experience is when a person has some kind of physiological trauma. Cardiac arrest is a good example because the person's clinically dead, and yet they have elaborate experiences. And this has been reported for thousands of years, one of which is often a life review where they relive their whole life in a short amount of time, and they re-experience events through the eyes of the people that they impacted. So they feel the pain that they inflicted on someone if they inflicted pain, and they feel the joy if they gave someone joy. So from that perspective, it's like this one mind, this one stream of consciousness is switching lenses somehow, and the interconnectivity becomes very apparent. So I think with that understanding, treating others well becomes an imperative even more so than without that understanding. So I, I think just that attitude of everyone is me at some level has a big effect. No, I, I, I really like that. And you included a statement in the book. I, I really like the way it was phrased about, I think it was, there's only one of us here. Yeah. I thought that was great. And, and someone that I interviewed for this show a few episodes ago, Isaac Bentwich, he talked about an experience he'd had in the Himalayas and he was with the teacher and he'd asked something like, what about the others? And the teacher said, there are no others. It's <laughs> like, that is so awesome. But again, maybe, yeah, I'm thinking, I don't mean, yeah, I'm going to save that thought. I don't want to disparage anybody. Okay. So let me just rattle off a few of the things that I thought might be worth talking about, both because they're interesting and I think potentially useful for the listener. And you can tell me where you, you want to go with the conversation. I'm interested to explore more about synchronicity you know, your view about that. I thought you lay out a really thought-provoking discussion 
I'm not sure what to call it, about free will. So maybe synchronicity, maybe free will. This idea that we all have amnesia. I thought that was an interesting way to phrase that. I've asked you those, talked about that. How can we, oh, and then surrender. So right now that's, oh, and I love what you said. So there's kind of five things here and we don't need to cover them all, but synchronicity, free will, the idea that we all have amnesia, this about surrender. And then about, I love what you say about non-attachment and detachment as not being the same thing. I'd never heard that before. It's a big one. Yeah. So maybe those, and then we'll just see where the conversation goes, if there's anything else, but that's what I see as the first part of this. Okay. Those are great topics. So let's start with synchronicity. And I'll just say on a personal level, this was a big one for me, even though my first book didn't talk about it all because it's very anecdotal. It's, it's reporting experiences that these are coincidences that you think maybe aren't random. And they started to happen to me when I began my journey in late 2016. My background, for those who aren't familiar with it, is in business. I started my career in investment banking, uh, became a partner at a Silicon Valley strategy firm where I, I was there for 10 years and recently left the firm. So my background is very conventional. I was not interested in any of this stuff. I was, if anything, agnostic, atheistic, somewhere in that nihilistic world. And everything shifted for me in 2016 when I began to hear about certain individuals' experiences and also reading the science. And it all kind of merged to the point where I said, wait a second, there's something here. And as that happened, I began having crazy synchronicities all the time where like just these, these coincidences that I couldn't reason were coincidences where someone would mention something very esoteric and then that same thing would come up like the next day, like over and over again to the point where I was writing them down in my my iPhone. I was like keeping a notepad of all the synchronicities. Well, like as, as, as an example, if I may, the one about, I think it was Canyon Ranch. Yeah. That was wild. Would you be willing to share that as an example for the listener of the kinds of thing? Yes. And I hope I remember all the details properly. So this happened in the fall of 2016. And I was, I've never been to Canyon Ranch Spa. It's in Tucson, Arizona, but I had a shirt that relatives of mine had given me a long time ago, and I happened to be wearing it this one day. I wasn't even thinking about wearing it. And one of the early books that I read in my journey was a book by Dr. Gary Schwartz, who's a Harvard-trained psychology professor. He's now at the University of Arizona. And he's written about mediumship, which is the evidence for the communications with the deceased. He's looked at that scientifically. And he's also looked at things like synchronicity and a bunch of other things. So I was reading his book, The Sacred Promise, and he was talking about some pretty wild synchronicities that he was having. And he was talking about how he does work at Canyon Ranch or gives talks there because he's at the University of Arizona. It's pretty close. And I remember, I think, looking down at my shirt and saying, that's kind of weird. I'm wearing a Canyon Ranch shirt and he's talking about Canyon Ranch and synchronicity. And then I was texting with a friend. At that point, I didn't have too many friends that were even close to interested in this stuff. And I had one friend who was kind of in the personal development space and knew a little bit about this. And I was texting with her and mentioned that I was reading this book. Turns out she was going to Canyon Ranch the next day. And I had two relatives that were there at the time. That is amazing. That, that was that totally amazing. Yeah. It, and, 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 and like you said, you were having so many of these synchronicities. You started writing them down, including like finding your podcast producer and running into a friend that you hadn't seen for years and years in a bookstore. Right. So like all these things. Right. But just to finish the Canyon Ranch story, the one that really got me was, for some reason, I decided to text that friend who was going to Canyon Ranch the next day and said, I'm reading this crazy book by Dr. Gary Schwartz all about synchronicities. And she sends me a text, a picture of the flyer for the lecture she's going to at Canyon Ranch, which is something like synchronicity and spiritual wellness taught by Dr. Gary Schwartz. And we had never talked about Gary Schwartz before. That is amazing. Wow. 
Yeah, that and and I know you might be you might be going here because I I interrupted your explanation of synchronicity to ask you to share an experience, but I'd never thought of it the way that you talked about. So I hope this is part of what you'll share about, about a pattern and how we don't really know whether we're seeing the full pattern or, or just a glimpse of the pattern. Maybe there really is a pattern, but because maybe our physiology is editing things out, you know, we're not present to it, but then synchronicity is maybe evidence that there is a pattern or designed to things maybe. Right. Well, I mean, the, the notion of synchronicity really gets to randomness or not. And randomness is something mathematical. It's looking at a set of data and evaluating mathematically whether something is happening in a non-random fashion. The issue for us as human beings is that we're only seeing things from our limited lens. What if we had a bird's eye view that could see the entire set of data and see that there are actually patterns that from the human lens we can't see? So sometimes we'll say, oh, well, that's random. And it is random based on the little set that we can see. But from a bird's eye view, actually, there is pattern to it. So synchronicities might be instances where from our limited perspective, we see the non-randomness, but in many other cases, the non-randomness is there and we just don't interpret it. Yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And again, it could be easy to chalk this up to, oh, it's just a coincidence. You know, of course, in a nearly infinite universe and all this time that you're going to get you're going to get with all these, you know, atoms colliding and, you know, energy moving around. Of course, you're going to get these incredible things that occur, <laughs> right? There's one way to look at it. Yeah, and, but then I guess that's the physicalist <laughs> worldview or there's right. this other worldview that no, there, there is something there. So yeah, oh, that that's amazing. Okay. So synchronicity. And then let me, let me ask you this about synchronicity. What, if anything could we do to accelerate the rate at which we experience synchronicity and why might it matter to do so? I'm going to give an opinion here because I don't really know the answer, but based on my personal experience, the more aligned I've become to this view of reality, I've found when I'm in more alignment, more synchronicity, more synchronicity seems to happen. There seems to be a correlation there of like, meditating a lot. Or when I first became interested in this stuff, I started to have tons of synchronicities, whereas previously I didn't have as many. And I've heard this from other people too. Something about the way we direct our orientation in our life might get us sort of in the flow with this broader consciousness rather than resisting it. And when we're in flow, synchronistic events seem to happen more. So that's my hypothesis. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And then maybe that goes hand in hand here with free will then, right? Because if we're, it's one thing to say that there's a, whatever, unified ground of being, or there's an infinite intelligence in the universe, that's one thing. And that we're all part of it. It's another, but to say that it has a design or an intention or a plan or a will of its own, right? That's another, and they're not, you could believe in one without believing in the other, but this question of, do we have free will to me takes on a different complexion if you're considering, I mean, because it's one thing, I think you could ask the question from that physicalist view, do we have free will or are we just biologically programmed? But then you could ask it from this oneness worldview of saying, do we have free will or are we the effect of this greater intelligence? And it's interesting to me that the question of free will could be questioned from either worldview, right? Maybe I'm programmed by my biology or maybe I'm programmed by the greater intelligence that I'm a part of. 
right? But either way, then I think the alternative is, no, can I actually live a self-determined life? Can I choose, do I really choose what to wear when I get up in the morning or what to eat <laughs> or what to you know do for a career? Do I really choose that? What What's your opinion about free will? This is a complicated one. So when someone asks the question, do I have free will? The first place we have to start, I think, is identifying what I means. And in the book, I distinguish between the absolute level of reality, which is basically looking from this bird's eye view of one big consciousness, one infinite consciousness, which at some level is our, our identity, versus the relative level, where there's a me and a you, Brian, where we're, we appear to be separate. And at the relative level, there, the I is Mark. It's not the one mind, the infinite consciousness. So at the level of the one mind, if it is really the basis of all reality and is infinitely intelligent, it doesn't seem to me that it's a far leap to say that that one mind, that consciousness has infinite free will because it's everything. It can do exactly whatever it wants because it is reality itself beyond space and time. So at that level, yeah, there's infinite free will. That's what I would say. The, the tricky part is the more practical part, which is that in this world, we're separate and there's a Mark and there's a Brian and there's everyone else individually in our own whirlpools. So then what is the interaction between the whirlpool and the stream? And this, I think, gets to topics that are beyond human comprehension. That's where I am with it right now, because at some level, there is no whirlpool. <laughs> the whirlpool is the stream itself, but we feel like we're the whirlpool and then we, we get into questions like, well, where do our thoughts even come from? So if I decide to touch my table, what was the thought that made that happen? Well, if consciousness doesn't come from the brain, how are, how are thoughts being generated? Are our thoughts being interpreted from the stream of consciousness? And if so, what is flowing into this whirlpool? So I think where I, I end up and what I say in the book is, it feels like we have the free will to set intentions. I mean, there's certainly things even from I think a conventional perspective where we don't have free will, like if lightning strikes, I didn't control that. And that's going to have an effect on my life potentially, or there's certain things that we can't control. But then there are things maybe within my life that I could conceivably control, like touching my table right now. That feels like maybe I could, or to set my life's compass that I want to be kind toward people, or I want to have kind of this overall intention for my life. Is that intention something that I can control? It feels like I can. So I'm going to go with, it can't hurt to act like we have an ability to control our intentions and the way we are in the world. And therefore, that's the way I act, even though I'm not sure if the intention itself is derived from this whirlpool. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And it reminds me of I, when I read Einstein's biography, the one written by Isaacson. And as I understood the part, and I don't even know why he got on this topic, but there was a brief passage where he talked about that Einstein questioned whether we have free will, seeing how much design there was in the universe to the orbiting of planets and the movement of electrons in this and saying humans aren't the one exception. There, there's probably not free will for human beings. However, there is a moral imperative to live as though we do have free will. I thought that was interesting. So what you're saying kind of aligns with that for me. And there was something in what you said um, that, triggered something for me too. And I don't, I don't remember what, it, what the connection was now, but, but I was reminded of the place in your book. Maybe it was because of maybe you, it's the I that's asking. That was what it was. Cause you were talking about in your book, you talk a lot about Hawkins and how he's been a big teacher for you. And, and then you list some of your other teachers. And, 
And I didn't know it at the time when, when we first talked, but Nisargadatta. And he's, his the book, I Am That, is one, I, it's the only book I read from every day. And I, five years ago, I don't think it would have held much interest for me. But now that book is so perfect. And this, this, I love this. I'm totally on a tangent here, but I love that, you know, here's this uneducated, uneducated, you know, shopkeeper that people would come to. And I love that somebody recorded all these conversations and how matter of fact he is. And when you talk about this, you know, the absolute, there's one view from absolute. Then there's the other view from the relative. And to me, to see the, the conversations that occur is people are here in the relative interacting with probably what is the absolute, you know, it's, it's such a mind twist. And, and for me, and I, I'm just going to continue my tangent if I may yeah, for a minute, cause yeah, I'm really knowing, knowing that these are your teachers. Some of these are your teachers too. I'd love to get your take on this. You know, I suspect that other people feel like I do in what I'm about to share, but with what I'm, what I'm doing, the work I'm doing in the world, who I know myself to be professionally as a coach and a teacher and an entrepreneur, there's a part of me with this worldview, this background of, okay, there's an infinite consciousness. There's a unity beyond this duality from, I realize I live a lot of my life as the self, the little S very attached to things driven by my desires and my fears. And, and I'm, and I often forget that I probably am, you know, that this is Leela, that there, this is a cosmic play. And then what I use that to do is to inform what I think is probably a nihilistic worldview of, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if I get up and grind out like you did on the 4th of July weekend, most of your first book or get this book done in such a short time and get it out into the world. It doesn't matter if I do that any more or less than if I just stay home and play Nintendo, you know, or walk around in my pajamas, you know, like, does it really matter what we do? I guess is the bottom line of, of that question. How do you, how do you see that? It goes back to this notion of humility is that we don't know the answer. I think we re- we don't know. Maybe there is some meaning behind getting up and doing whatever we're supposed to do or not, or maybe it doesn't matter. I really don't know. You're reminding me of a conversation that David Hawkins had in a recording. He passed away several years ago where he, he mentions Ramana Maharshi, who I, I think he was also speaking from the absolute like Nizargadatta, a very advanced guy. And he said something like the world that we see doesn't exist, something like that. And which gets to this idea, like, if the world doesn't even exist, nothing matters. It's kind of this spiritual nihilism almost. And what Hawkins said is, Maharshi is correct at, at the level of consciousness from which he speaks. He is absolutely correct. However, we live in a world where many people are not operating from that level of consciousness. And therefore, to apply that worldview to people that are suffering is a spiritual error. Because from their level of reality, they are suffering. And therefore, they could use help in some way. So that's, that's how I tend to think about things is I don't know if everything ma- maybe none of it matters at all, but maybe it does. And if we are part of one interconnected consciousness, then I'm going to do my part because it's, it's like a low risk move. What's the risk? Maybe a little bit of suffering in that I have to spend a lot of time on something and maybe that's uh, grueling in some way, but it's not really suffering. And in the best case scenario, maybe it's helping something that actually does matter. Yeah. Well, thank you for, thank you for shedding that, that perspective sharing that with me. This is one of the questions that I ask myself a lot. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually really amazed in your life's journey about how, you know, you share 
your experience even and I, and I am amazed by the way uh, how you performed at such a high level in many regards whether it was with your tennis or your academics without believing necessarily that or in your investment banking career that you worked very hard and you you achieved at a very high level without a, a sense of purpose as I understand it but but then when you started to wake up in that healing powers podcast in 2016 and so forth how quickly you've I don't want to say advanced because I don't want to make it sound like that, but how much you've learned and how much you've done or what may be a massive change you made in your life in such a short time. Like to me, I'm, I'm very amazed at that. And I'm also hopeful, you know, for people who feel stuck or who feel lost that, you know, I could share your experiences, something of like the possibility, the kind of transformation that's possible for someone. How do you see, as you look at your own life, you know, having lived decades and relatively a short period, you've made a massive change. How does that occur for you now? Well, thank you for saying that, Brian. I mean, the reason I share my story is is for exactly what you said. I want to give people a blueprint that this can be done to show that. And that's why I'm a bit more personal in the second book. And I can't really explain how it happened so quickly. And when I look back, it has happened quickly. But in some ways, it feels very natural, like it's just been flowing. When I first started the process, I had no plans of being public with this stuff. I wasn't planning on writing books or doing podcasts. Or, like the fact that we're having this interview right now is, is still kind of amazing to me. That, that was not on my radar not too long ago. <laughs> so I think the biggest, the biggest driving force for me was passion. Somehow this struck a chord with me where all I wanted to do was learn this stuff. And when that happened, nothing was going to stop me. It was like whatever I was applying to other areas of my life where I didn't even have that full passion. I was kind of like forcing it in most other areas of my life. Now I was using that same energy, but with passion. So there was less resistance to it. So I think part of the reason it happened so quickly is that I was trained. I was sort of like not in the military, but almost military trained, like that kind of I mean, academically, I was just working all the time. Investment banking is sort of like military for business in a way. And I applied a lot of and tennis, just being an athlete and having to be on a, on a regimented schedule. So I was trained for that. And then I applied it to something I actually cared about. And that was the perfect storm that allowed me to do this quickly, I think. That, that's pretty awesome. Okay. So these other, these other questions, the things I was curious about, I think we've touched on. There was this thing about amnesia. There's this thing about surrender. What it, what it means, how to do it. Non-attachment is distinct from detachment. You know, these things that can sound Buddhist or at least spiritual. But again, I think if we understand them, it starts to make something possible for us that we might have not even thought of before. So will you, let's maybe start with this idea of non-attachment and how it's distinct from detachment and why that might matter for somebody. How do you see that? So non-attachment is the idea that it's best not to fixate on an outcome, something that we want, a desire, or something that we don't want, a fear. And fears and desires are flip sides of one another, basically. So an attachment is being bound to a fear or a desire. It's like almost craving something. Like, I require this to happen, and if not, then I'm going to be upset. That's distinct from saying, I would really like to have a piece of pizza today, but if I don't, that's okay. That's a different, that's just a desire. An attachment is, no, I need to get that raise. I have to get that raise in a month. And if I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. So one of the principles I talk about, this is in a section of, uh, I think it's called approaches to right side up living. These, this is one of the approaches of non-attachment is that based on the principle of intellectual radical humility, we can't know what's actually happening in the universe, what kind of will or 
cosmic design. I don't know what, we don't know what's actually happening. And therefore it could be possible that from the perspective of the absolute, certain outcomes that would seem unfavorable to me at the relative level actually are favorable at some higher level, whether it's for reasons of karma, whether it's for reasons even from a more conventional perspective. Let's say someone gets sick and that leads other people to then change their lives to help this person, which then affects the world positively in other ways. There's a ripple effect sometimes even when a seemingly negative event happens. So the, the overall idea is that we can't fixate intellectually, if we wanna be intellectually honest, we don't know what the best outcome is gonna be ever. So therefore to attach to an outcome doesn't make intellectual sense. And so that's where, that's the approach I've taken to it, even though many traditions forever have talked about non-attachment, that's the way it's like really stuck for me is that I just don't know the best outcome. Okay, so we're talking about this non-attachment versus detachment. And I love what you, because you, you pointed out that this is in a section of the book that I realize hearing you say it this way now that I actually want to ask you about this well, which is you say, you know, chapter four of your book is approaches to right side up living. And this, what we're now talking about, about non-attachment is only one of those approaches. And while I don't necessarily want to cover all of them in this interview, anyone who's interested to learn those buy the book, read the book. But let me ask you this, Mark, what are they? How did you decide, you know, what they were? and how to include them, whether or not they were worth including. Where do thoughts come from? I don't know. I don't, <laughs> when I think back, I, it's hard for me to actually to know where they came from. This book was really a synthesis of three and a half years of personal living and researching. So it was, I guess over time, those, those ideas seemed to encompass basically everything as, as much as possible. So I thought those 10 ideas were comprehensive in that they covered the key approaches in, in terms of how I think about life and cover what many spiritual teachers have taught me about that. That makes sense. And some of these, you know, forgiveness or authenticity or surrender, you know, that was the other, the other thing that I, that I want, want to ask you about before we transition. You know, I can see these are, it's amazing to me how simple it is to write a word, but how a single word, how a single word can represent an entire worldview, a deep experience of life, you know, a practice that can transform our lives. And, and so what you share in, in your book within the framework of, you know, this, most of us are living an upside down life. Let's talk about what it is, what the alternative is, and then how to get there. And that's again, to me, part, a big part of why this is so valuable is you're sharing both your experience and then these, these tools or these practices that we can use to more fully step into that new I don't even want to say a new world, the world that's always been there that we maybe weren't aware of or have access to. Yeah, so definitely. thank you for that. You're welcome. I will also want to touch on detachment, Brian, before we get onto oh, the other yes. ones. To, thank to, you. Distinct, to distinguish non-attachment from detachment, because I think this is something that even I kind of got lost in in the beginning, and we've alluded to this, because there can be a spiritual nihilism, which is, well, okay, I'm an infinite being, cares about anything, nothing really matters that much. The world I see doesn't exist, which is all true. And the paradox is that there's another truth, which is that this relative reality does exist and I feel pain and I feel joy and their emotions and there's a life that I'm living as Mark at the same time as I'm the infinite whatever. That's at least this framework. Detachment would be to say, well, I'm detached from the world. I don't really care about anything. And that is not the same as non-attachment. Non-attachment is not fixating on an outcome, but still being passionate in the exploration of whatever one is doing or potentially going after a passion or whatever seems right doing that with 100% effort, but not fixating on the outcome. 
detachment is saying, well, it's not even worth it to get off the couch because I don't really need to. That would be an extreme version. So it's a fine line. And I've, I've seen the word detachment used sometimes where, they act, where the person actually means non-attachment. And I'm very sensitive to that because I've seen it in people I've come across where the, the people will cross that line and move to the detachment area. And that could be potentially dangerous because it's, I think it's not as pleasurable a way of living. And it's potentially, who knows, maybe it's not in alignment with reality because it could be going against helping, I don't know, being active in, in serving in some way. Yeah. Or a somewhat convenient way to shirk one's duty, <laughs> right? Or, or, the, or to not make the contribution we could make, the difference we could make. As I realize, you know, as my, as my life and my career progress, I hope they're progressing as life moves me forward, that one thing I'm really in, interested to help people experience, and I want to experience more myself, I do think it's true. We teach what we need to learn is that life does matter that we are powerful, right? We do have the ability to make a difference or a contribution and then how, and that's exactly what I see your book, you know, offers as well. So I'm, I'm really glad. And, and, and I heard from, you know, Lynn twist. I love her view of when she talks about the mission of her organization, the Pachmam Alliance, that something like a world that's spiritually fulfilling, socially just and environmentally sustainable. Right. And then she's like, but that's, that's not just our mission. That's the mission. <laughs> like that's life is, is a world where those things are, are all true. And I think that's what your work's about. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate your point about the power of the individual. And I say this at the very end of the book that each person has the power to individually set his or her compass, her intention, his or her intention for how to live life. No matter who you are, we have that power. And I think we live in a world where power seems to be stratified. And that to me is an illusion. So part of this whole movement, I think, which is happening in many different areas is to empower the individual, no matter who that individual is. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I actually wrote that down. There were only a few sentences I actually wrote <laughs> to ask you. And this was one where you say, most of the world is operating from a compass that is completely misaligned with reality. But then I was interested, and I think we've talked a lot about what you mean by that, I think. But what I was interested to know is when you say most of the world, that means there's some who aren't. Who are the people who aren't? <laughs> and then how, if we, if we are operating from that compass, how can we align with it? And I think you've talked about that. That's what chapter four offers. But currently, who are the people, if it's useful, maybe who are the people that you see are not those who are operating from a compass that's completely misaligned? Well, the place I would start is some of the teachers that I mentioned in chapter four that have really, that I've learned from. I mean, my book is a, a compilation of what other people have said. It's my way of expressing what other people have said for a long time. So that, that would be where I would start. So people like Dr. David Hawkins, Nizar Gadada Maharaj, Ramana Maharshi. I really like Adyashanti, who's still alive. The other three are, are no longer living. Swami Sarva Priyananda, who's a Vedanta scholar. Rupert Spira, Francis Lucille. These are great teachers of non-duality, I think, and a number of others. Joel Goldsmith, I like. He, he was in the early 1900s. So I think people like that who are, who are speaking from this absolute perspective, where many, in many cases, they've actually experienced it. For them, it's not just something that we're intellectually talking about. They have been to the point where they feel the oneness and they're teaching from that perspective. And there are many similarities in what they say. And the way they end up living their life is similar. I mean, it becomes about service and helping others elevate their consciousness because that's ultimately what this is about. And whether we improve the environment or improve politics and the economy, those are kind of byproducts of elevating consciousness. 
So I would start with those people, those great teachers. And I think people that have either personally had experiences where they understand this absolute level of reality from personal experience or who have spent lots of time from many of these teachers, I think they are likely orienting their compass, at least directionally, somewhere that's closer to the reality than the physicalist worldview. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Well, what... I'll ask you this one here too. And then I think this is my last question aside from what haven't we covered that you want to touch on related to the book, but what was the biggest thing that you learned? I mean, I heard you say this, this latest book was the synthesis of, you know, years of learning and you wrote it quickly, but what was the biggest either surprise or insight or takeaway from having now written a second book that explores these, these concepts? Biggest takeaway. Or how do you think you're different now as a result of this book that you wouldn't have been had you not written it? What I found now that I've written two books and also produced a podcast series, which was sort of like writing multiple books because each episode was a narrative that I had to write. So now that I've done this exercise multiple times, I find that the writing process helps me organize my own thoughts. So many of the thoughts in the book, all of the thoughts in the book were there and they've probably been there for several years as I've learned more and more. And they've kind of just accumulated in my mental space. But by putting them on paper, it helps me think about things in a different way, which I think is important for me for sure, but also it helps me articulate things more clearly, whether it's with friends or in interviews or in lectures, whatever it is. And that's helpful because other people will then understand the concepts much more easily. That's what I found. It sticks better because I've sort of weeded out the stuff that's not as relevant, or at least in in my mind, and more efficiently phrased things in in the book writing process. So that's probably the biggest takeaway for me in writing. Yeah. I can see that by the way, and just an unsolicited reflection, (laughs) if I may, I do, I went and re-listened to our interview and then I listened to some of your series, Where's My Mind in preparation for this. And, and one of the things that stood out to me is that I think you do speak very authoritatively, first of all, because you have such a mastery of, you know, who are these other teachers and what are the studies and, and all of that. And you just, you know, it right off. But the other thing is, like you're saying that, and I can see now, you know, this could be a result of having done that thinking in the writing is that you do speak about it very clearly. You know, it's not, you're not trying to clarify your thinking through your speaking that comes out, you know? And so I, I hope, how is it landing? Let me ask you this. What's your sense of, as this gets out there, you know, cause you never know. I, I think writing a book is a little bit like a letter in a, in a bottle. You throw it in the ocean and who knows where it goes. How is this podcast landing? How is the book? How's it being received? Well, it's interesting as a content producer. What I've learned is that relative to the total number of people that have taken in the content I've put out, I hear from a very small percentage. So I really don't know. That's that's the answer. But I do hear from people every now and then who will go to my website and find the contact page and they'll send me a note. And some people tell me that it has transformed their life completely. And so that that makes me feel very good because my life was transformed. And the reason I started to do all this is I wanted to make that easier for people because I had to look in all kinds of different sources and put the pieces together. It, I just didn't see a, a cohesive argument in one place. So I wanted to create that for people. So when I hear that, that I'm happy about that and people say that their lives are improving. So I'm hoping that there are many other instances and not just the few I've heard from. That's great. I'm, I'm sure there are. And that's one of the wonderful things too about writing a book is, you know, something you'll leave behind that will continue to make a difference long after you're gone. That's another way I think about all of this is that who knows when someone will read something and what kind of impact it will have. And especially the second book. I mean, the first book is kind of the 
where we are today in terms of the science, which I think has somewhat of a timeless quality to it, but we're going to have new science that might supplant it in some way. Whereas the second book is more, it has some of the science, but the principles to me are more timeless. And so I'm, I may be reinvigorating concepts that have been around for a long time and p- putting them into modern language, which I hope will be around for a while. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's really valuable. And again, I know I've said this already a time or two, but about then personalizing it, putting it in a way that it's beyond, you know, an insight that someone might have and now making, making it actionable, you know, for people. And that's, that's the key though. I mean, like you said, a word is just a word on a page and implementing it and embodying it. That's where the challenge is. And that's what I've experienced. And I think every human being, we, it's just part of the human experience is to go through the ups and downs. So my hope is for people to really take the book to heart and maybe a, a concept that is just a few paragraphs to actually apply that when life becomes challenging. That's what's difficult. That's what I found is that because there's a tendency to revert to just animalistic instincts and our conditioning when something happens and to stop that and, or just allow it to be there and say, wait a second, let me remember this principle of surrender, which we can talk about or non-attachment. And then it might lessen some of the suffering. So that's the exercise to implement when, when it gets tough. No, I'm, I'm with you there. Well, in that thing, I know I did ask you about surrender. I thought what you included about these four, you kind of give four steps almost, you know, or four approaches to surrender. So let's, let's do talk about that. What, what's your view of it? Like, why did you include it? How do you understand it? And then what can, how can we do it? Surrender is critical. It may be the most important concept, but actually all of these concepts, not attachment, they are corollaries of the understanding of this one consciousness that is the infinite and interconnected with everything. When we understand this theory that we're the whirlpool within the stream, the whirlpool within the one mind, then at some level, we are sort of like this puny being that can't really understand that much, not to degrade the human, but just to put the human in context in, in, in relative to this broader intelligence. So the, the principle of humility steps in again and says, wait a second, I don't know what's best. I don't even really know what I'm doing here. And therefore, the best that I can do potentially is to surrender whatever I think is best because I don't really know. I don't know. I can think something is best, but I'm not sure. I can surrender and try to be a vehicle or a vessel for the broader stream of consciousness, which has much more intelligence embedded in it. So that intention, I think one of humility might open up, might open us up to the broader intelligence by saying, wait a second, I'm just here to be a vessel of service. And therefore I surrender my individual will to the broader will. It sounds nice. <laughs> How do we do it? Right? Like, cause and when you share that, by the way, I'm, I'm reminded of what I heard, something I, I read online one time about Oprah that she would for, you know, years long before she was famous would pray, you know, like something like Lord use me, you know, like a perfect example of surrender. Just how can I be of service? And so, you know, clearly she's one example, but I, I think that's pretty remarkable that there are people who wake up and their thought really is, you know, how can I serve another or how, how can I do something other than chase my own preferences, desires, you know, and things like that. But how, so how can we practice this surrender that you're talking about? It's definitely a process. So it's, it's been the fact that I've been able to go through this is, I think, helpful for me in, in talking about it because I've been through, okay, hearing about surrender and then starting to implement it more and more. So what I said earlier about when a situation comes up and then kind of pausing for a second and remembering these principles, that's when I think we start to make real advances to say, wait, something's happening and I don't love what's happening, but I'm going to surrender because I don't really know what's going on. And maybe if I had a helicopter's view and I saw the little like mouse running through the maze and saw what's ahead in the maze, 
then I wouldn't be so worried about this little turn, you know, just to open up to different possibilities. So I think there is a mental step to, to internalize the principle and to say, wait a second, maybe this is the real thing that, that, that as the individual, I don't really know what's best and therefore I can surrender. But there are four steps that I mentioned in the book that are sort of practical ways of implementing it, or at least that's how it's worked for me. The first one is, so the, the, the way it's phrased in the book is basically, how do we then act in the world if we're surrendering? Because the notion of surrender is one of allowing rather than forcing. It doesn't mean being inactive. It's not detachment, but it's like allowing and then acting with passion within that. And I, I, I talk about active passivity versus passive activeness. It's like somewhere in the middle of active being active and passive. And that's the surrendered state. So one could say, wait, I'm going to surrender to this one mind and I'm not going to get off the couch because I'm surrendering. And that's not, what, that's not what I'm arguing. So the four steps of how you might act in that state of allowing is to follow values. And that might be integrity, for example, is that whatever I do when I'm acting is in integrity, for example, and whatever other values one has. The next is to follow passions. And this is something that's difficult to describe because only you know what your passion is. It's sort of like a no doubt, yes, I'm moving in this direction for sure. And I've, I've really become attuned to that in myself. I've noticed that that sort of is the best guide for me. I know some people like hear things or they'll see things. I don't have that. I have a, a sort of a knowing sense that this is the right thing to do. Like when I, it came time to write the book and we can talk about that, there was no question. At that point, it's like it's game on because I just had this passion for it. So following passions is really big. And we might even conjecture that following a passion is sort of like water from the stream entering the whirlpool. It's like you're being guided by this broader intelligence and passion is a way, a silent way of being told you're on the right track. So it is a form of surrender because you're allowing that in to guide you. The third is following intuitions, which is a, a form of knowing. It's not necessarily a passion, but it's sort of like, well, I, I just have a feeling that I should do this versus that. And intuition is really tough because it involves trial and error. And it's something that I'm still working on all the time where I feel like I have an intuition and then I act on it and I realize, wait a second, I don't think that was the right move. So I'm starting to, I think, gauge a bit more what's, in, what's a, a proper intuition versus what's like maybe my ego getting in the way. But learning to calibrate intuition is part of this process of surrender. And the fourth one is my favorite, which comes from author Suzanne Siegel, who says, do the next obvious thing. It sounds so easy, right? Yeah. Now, and that one, that one really resonates with me too, because as a coach, I see, you know, I work with people who are stuck and what I've seen is that when we're stuck, it's almost always a function of not either knowing what the next step is or what the outcome is, or what are we even trying to do in the first place or what's the next thing. And once we get clear about the next thing, you can take it. And then from there, you get clear about the next thing <laughs> and then you take it, you do the next thing. Yeah. It's hard because in society, we're taught to want to plan ahead and, and to think that we know what the future will hold. But now when I look at back, back at my life, even when I thought I was planning for the future, I really had no idea what the future was going to bring. And my planning, while relevant in some ways, was irrelevant in other ways. So that might be one exercise someone could do to actually show that their form of planning outside of the next obvious thing is actually a futile step. Yeah, it gives a new understanding for me to... Eisenhower's statement about plans are worthless, but planning is everything, right? Like the process of figuring out where do I want to be or what do I want? What result do I want to create in the world? 
the act of thinking through that and how you might get there can be really valuable, but then not being so darn attached to it's got to happen, you know? Right. And it's a, it's a form of presence also that being in the present moment and following whatever is the next obvious thing, but the next obvious thing might be to plan something. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Awesome. Is there anything else related to, to the contents of this book or, or anything else that you want to talk about here before we move on to four questions in the lightning lightning round, and then a few questions about creativity and, and marketing and promotion? The one thing I would say is that is for your listeners to, to please think about the question that I pose in the book. What is the overall intention of your life? In other words, what is the orientation that drives all of your values, decisions, priorities? Because the answer to that question is going to govern how you live and everything you do. Yeah, I love that. And, and, I, and when I encourage people something similar, I add to it that, look, your life is already about something, but is it about something that you've chosen for it to be about? or how you were raised, you know, or some, what society rewards and celebrates. So I'm, I'm with you there. Okay. That's great. Okay. So the enlightening lightning round, how you doing by the way? You good? I'm great. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Okay. So my first question in the enlightening lightning round is I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? That's a good question. Depends on how we define very few. Arguably, this this notion that consciousness is fundamental versus the physicalist worldview that we live in a random universe, consciousness comes from the brain, there's no life after death, there's no consciousness after death. That is something, that worldview I hold is contrary to what many people believe, including a lot of really smart people. Yeah, for sure. Okay, thank you. Question number two, what are you currently reading? I have not been doing as much reading recently. So it's interesting that you asked that. I'm trying to think back to, I think I have a few books that I'm that I have partially open. What I've been most drawn to recently in terms of reading is the really high level spiritual guys. So at some points I was mostly interested in reading the science, which is still relevant to me, but sometimes it's less interesting because I've kind of accepted the reality of these things. And it's just more proof that maybe I don't need in certain ways, or we're just understanding nuances of how the science works. And there's a lot there, but I have, I am that open on my table and that's a book. I don't read it every day, but reading a page from that every now and then that will just bring you to the absolute pretty quickly to say, wait a second, I was so stuck in my whirlpool. Let me just at least think about this other way of looking at the world. Right on. Awesome. And you'll remember too, like you'll see the stack on your nightstand (laughs) as soon as we're done with the interview. You'll be like those, those seven books. Okay. Question number three, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? In the book, one of the approaches to right side up living is the idea of compassion with discernment. And compassion is an innate quality of this one mind because we're all interconnected. So being compassionate toward people in relationships, that makes complete sense. That's a natural instinct, I think, for human beings, but also it's just part of the nature of reality. And that's, I talk about the, the golden rule, how it's actually built into the structure of reality through the life review potentially. So the reason I say compassion with discernment is that we, being compassionate makes sense, but there are boundaries that we sometimes need to set in all relationships. Because if we let other people basically infringe on our space in some way to, do, to force us to do things that are not okay with us, whether they're big or small, that then becomes detrimental to the individual, to, to me, if someone is, is, is violating a boundary, basically. And if I allow that to happen, and if it's detrimental to me, then I'm kind of lowering myself and being less capable of serving. So making sure that boundaries are set in some way so that we are 
in alignment with our authentic self and not letting others kind of push us around. There's, there's a fine line there, but making sure that the boundary is appropriately set and also set with care. If, if it means telling someone that, hey, you're, you're kind of overstepping the boundary to do that in a very careful way. Yeah. Yeah. Boundaries are, boundaries can be challenging, you know, and as, as you talk about boundaries now, I'm thinking of saying only the exceedingly ignorant and the exceedingly wise are inflexible. <laughs> and it's like, which am I being with this boundary? You know? Okay. Question number four, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money setting aside compound interest or what's something you're always sure to do with it or you never do with it? One of the approaches in the book is also is stewardship. We haven't talked about that one. This relates to money. Stewardship is the notion that we are here to be stewards of our unique abilities and resources. And that could be money. That could be other things. So I look at money as a way of serving in some way. And that can mean serving myself so that I'm more capable of being of service. So there is a use of, of, for money for the individual, but then also thinking about how to allocate it most efficiently to help the world in the best way possible. And that just wasn't something I didn't, I didn't even really think about money in a metaphysical context before, but now I do, I see it as a way of actually enabling a lot. Yeah. Money is amazing how many different ways there are to think of it. I mean, let alone how many ways there are to spend it, <laughs> but how many ways to view it is pretty amazing. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. And congratulations. You built up, you inoculated to the lightning round by your first interview. So this, you survived. This one is easy. No problem. <laughs> yes. That was it. it. Okay. So the last part of the interview here, I just want to ask you a bit about the creative process, about the act of writing, about what you've learned when it comes to marketing and promotion. Let me start by asking you this. How was the process of getting this book written and published similar from and different to your first book. This is going to be a fun one because the, the story of how the book came about is, is just super interesting. So the way the first book happened to give context, like I said, I started in late 2016 researching on my own, didn't talk to many people about it, then started to tell friends about some of the research I was doing. Many of them said, wait a second, if that's real, like I need to rethink life. And a lot of people gave me positive feedback. And then at a certain point, I was just so passionate about the topic and had learned so much combined with the impact I thought the book could have, where in the summer of 2017, I decided to sit down and write the book and then wrote a big chunk of the book over July 4th weekend in 2017, which was a long weekend. So that was different than this one in that I had never written a book before. I had done lots of writing. I wrote a thesis at Princeton. So I'd been kind of trained to do writing and even professionally at my firm, which I recently left, we... It was sort of like a hybrid of a consulting firm, strategy consulting with investment banking, meaning advising companies on buying and selling stuff. So very strategic and giving advice. And in that process, I often had to create narratives for senior management and boards of directors. And that would be using PowerPoint slides, but there are parallels to how one writes a book in terms of organization and synthesizing ideas because of a board, a board of directors usually doesn't have a long attention span. And if you're the third party advisor, you might come in for like a half hour in the board meeting where they're there for a full day. So it's like, how do you get the message across really efficiently? And so I combined a lot of those skills, I think, in writing the first book. And when I wrote the first book, in terms of the level of difficulty, relative to the things that I had done in the past, it didn't feel so difficult because I had done other stuff that was much more daunting. And so I think it flowed very, very well when I wrote the first book. And I had done all this research for a year. Like my, it was ex my mind was exploding with stuff. So at that point, I, it was my first time writing a book and I didn't know anything about the publication process. 
And I was very fortunate to get in touch with my now literary agent and publisher, Bill Gladstone at Waterside Productions. A few weeks after I wrote the manuscript, I reached out to him in September of 2017. It was like six weeks after I'd finished the manuscript, I think. And he happened to respond to my cold email where I sent him sample chapters. I filled out the, their kind of application form and he said, here's a contract. So very shortly after writing the book, I had an agent, which in hindsight, I realized that's pretty absurd the way this has flowed. Like things have just gone in my favor in ways that I didn't control. And so that that kickstarted the process. I then ended up publishing the book with Bill Gladstone, who has his own publishing arm. And there were a number of reasons I did that. One of them is that he's the editing editorial process was much more under my control and the speed of being able to get the book out. It was it just a much better process for me. So the book came out in October of 2018. So that was the duration. I wrote it in the summer of 2017. It came out over a year later. So I will tell you as an author, I don't know what it's like for other authors. That was an excruciatingly long time for me. I, I wanted to get the book out as soon as I wrote it. And I remember having conversations before I even reached out to agents. Should I just put this out? Like find a, an editor, just get, make sure there's no errors in it and just put it out and not charge anyone. And what people said was that that wouldn't be smart because people won't take the book as seriously if it's not formally published. And I think that was a wise advice that there was benefit to going through a formal publication process and at least to try to get a publisher. So that, that was the process of the first book. So the second book came about very differently because when I wrote the first book, I wasn't public in any way beyond a little bit of public stuff around the business world, but that was kind of just in the niche of what I did business-wise. I had written some articles and had been interviewed for business opinions. What I'm talking about now is like changing a scientific paradigm and people's worldviews. This is much a much grander topic. Yeah, in a field that you didn't have a deep background in. Right. As a non-scientist, non-doctor, business guy trying to write a book about very big topics and had never spoken about this stuff publicly. So that was a shift for me when I wrote the first book is to kind of like get out there and be public. And I, I wasn't that nervous about it, but maybe there was some conditioning that where I felt some tension of just what's going to happen and not really knowing. By the time I wrote the second book, I mean, I've done so many interviews now, wrote the first book, written a po done the podcast, like I'm out there. So I know what it's like. It's actually not that different than before I wrote the book in many ways. Like I said, not that many people relative to those who have taken in the content. I hear from a small percentage. And even if I heard from more people, like my life and my circles, it's, it's not that different objectively. So to write a second book was sort of, it's not as big a deal. That's probably the best way I'd put it. But here's how it happened. I had been thinking about a second book for a while and my publisher had been asking me about it for a while. And at first I was like, I don't know if I'm going to write a second book. I mean, this one is really, this book, first book's really important, shifting the paradigm. It's huge for society that I just, let me just focus on that. And writing a book, that was a big process. I mean, like editing, most of, both of my books had little like developmental editing, which was fortunate. Like the way I wrote it ended up being the way it was published, but there's always little stuff like grammar and making sure there are no errors and formatting. That stuff takes time. And just finding those little needles in the haystack at the end, I end up spending hours to find one error. And so writing of the second book, I decided in December of 20, 2019, so a few months ago, that I was going to leave my firm after 10 years. And that would have sounded so absurd to me years ago because, I mean, I started as an associate at my firm, made my way up to partner. I'm 34 now. The partners at the firm are 50s, 60s. So I was the, the young guy always and worked my way up and worked really hard for years, became a partner in 2018, right before my first book came out. And I realized that my job was not in alignment anymore. And I kind of been realizing that over time, but I guess it got to a point where 
I was like, this is just not, this is not what I should be doing. Even though I'm pursuing my passions on the side, this feels so out of alignment for me. And it's not because of anything that they did wrong. It just wasn't my path anymore. So I made the decision to give notice. So I only told the partners at my firm because I didn't want to disrupt the, the younger guys or cause chaos or anything and stayed on for a few months to transition out, worked part-time um, up until the end of March of 2020. Do you mind if I ask you about that, about that, that conversation? What was that like to, you know, after a decade and having made partner and then you get clear that, okay, I'm actually going to step away from this. How did that, how did that conversation go? How did you plan for it? How did you initiate it? How did it go? It was tough for me. That was a tough one because I had worked very hard with these guys and we still have a very good relationship, but we had been through a lot together, some business deals, just, just, and we'd been through, through some pretty crazy business deals. And one I allude to in the book, I, I can't talk about it because it's confidential, but we saw things like courtroom drama because we deal with intellectual property and like very high level technology, high value stuff. And we saw what goes on with that and stock price manipulations and, and you know, our clients going through all that. So we were kind of at war together over many years and got along well. So it was difficult to say that I was going to be leaving, especially without a, like a real impetus. It wasn't like there, it, it wasn't like I was going to something else. And that was part of the conversation. I wasn't leaving for another job. I was leaving because I felt like I needed space to pursue this other stuff. And that's the way I, I set it up in my mind before I had the conversations with my former partners. And I think they understood, they handled it very well. I'm appreciative of it. And it was amicable, but not easy for me. It's, it's amazing how I think in every one of our lives, whether it's a relationship, you know, or it's a job or it's some other commitment, you know, that we have this opportunity to, we can either continue to live around it and not be in alignment, or we can be, you know, we can live our truth and share it regardless of the consequences. So I just, I just wanted to ask that. And, and I don't, I didn't mean to totally derail because I, I want to, I, I do, I do want to definitely hear, you know, how this all came about. Cause you're saying this is in December, 2019, you made the decision to leave Sherpa. And then by February, by the end of February, the book is drafted, right? I'm published maybe. So, okay. So what, what happened in those two months? Well, very quickly, this is coming to mind. So I'm going to mention it. You, you talked about how things sometimes aren't in alignment and then people go with it anyway, which I had been doing. And I did it in my previous job in investment banking. I, I stuck with it, even though I kind of was not in alignment. The term that Adyashanti uses is rat poison. When you're on a path that's not aligned with whatever your true path is, it starts to feel like rat poison and it's, it's just not workable anymore. So that's ultimately what happened is that the rat poison feeling just started to overcome me, not because someone did something wrong, just because of an internal feeling. So, that, so back to the story of how I got to the book. When I made the decision to leave the firm and had those conversations, all of a sudden I started to get m many more insights for this new book. It's amazing, right? How it's like you, you're holding onto something and then you let it go and then space is available for something else to come in. Totally. I mean, thinking back, I really didn't have visibility into what I was going to be doing. I've always been that way since the end of 2016. It's been the next obvious thing over and over again. I could never have predicted being here, but it's even on the, the shorter timeframes, it's, I don't know what's going to happen next. At that point, let's go back to November. I didn't know what was next. I mean, maybe I thought I'd write another book at some point, but at that point, it would have been forcing it to write another book. And then December, I, I make this decision and all of a sudden the insights start to come in. And I, I have kind of a general framework for how I might think about writing the book. And then I started to realize a lot of the research I was doing before, how it would fit in. And I would say just two influences in case your listeners are interested. One is a podcast called Buddha at the Gas Pump. 
which I really enjoy because it's uh, stories of spiritually awakening people who have gone through this awakening journey. And you hear from all walks of life what they've been through. And that's been helpful for me just to see what the patterns are in people independently. So around November is when I started listening to that podcast a lot. Whereas before I would listen to it every now and then, I was listening to multiple episodes a day for about three months. And these are two hour interviews sometimes. So this is why I said I have been reading books. I was listening to these interviews nonstop for months. So I listened to hundreds and, of hours. And this is Rick, Rick Archer. Rick Archer. And, and, and now I understand you become friends with him, but when you started listening, I mean, maybe I'm wrong on that, but did you know him before you started listening? I met Rick when I spoke at a conference in 2018. He came to my talk and then he invited me to be on his show in February of 2018. So we've been friends since then, have a similar worldview, but I really got into his podcast even more pretty recently where I just, I I got it. Uh, Mark, you were saying there were two influences. Buddha, the gas pump is one. What, what is the other? The other primary influence, because there are many, was David Hawkins. And the year before, so it was late fall of 2018 right after the first book came out, I was listening to David Hawkins's old lectures. He passed away in, I think, 2012, and he has tons of lectures on Audible. And one day I was sitting in my apartment in San Francisco and I just ordered, like, I don't even know how many of his lectures and just put them on my Audible. And then over the course of several months, it was all I did was listen to him talk. And he was a former physician. At one point he was an atheist because he says he felt all of the pain of humanity at one point when he was a teenager. And he decided there could be no God that would allow that. And then ultimately had some mystical experiences where he started to realize this other reality. And I think he got to very advanced levels like many others, but because he's a a modern psychiatrist, I think he puts things in a way that at least for me resonate. He tends to be very intellectual, I think, in the way he phrases things. And He is an expert at deconstructing the ego because he's seen it in his patients and he saw it in himself. So I listened to many of his lectures and got to the point where I, like, I sort of knew what he was going to say before he said it. And I knew at that point where I was like, I don't know 100% of his stuff, but between the lectures and his books, a lot has been internalized. And so when I, and I got to this point in December and then the insights started coming in, a lot was being influenced from David Hawkins and then the interviews that I heard on Rick Archer's Buddha at the Gas Pump. From listening, I mean, back to that podcast, they're long form. So it's not like a like a quick hit when you listen to it, where it's going to blow you away in two, two minutes. It's the compilation of listening to people over the course of hours and to hear their story, to hear the intonation, to hear the ups and downs of their life and the nuances, that became internalized over time. And when I was thinking about what I would do for the next book, I realized it would be heavily influenced by those two areas, which really encompass many other things, but those were the sources, plus kind of an update on the science, or at least a a more compressed way of talking about the science I talked about in my first book. But at that point, I didn't didn't know I was going to write a book in February, in December of 2019. What I decided to do was to sign up for retreats which I hadn't been able to do because I work in a, I worked in a client services business. You can get emails any day and have to be on point, especially high-end client services. That's the expectation. So I couldn't just go off the grid for a week ever. So I signed up and because I was going to be working part-time and that's what I told the partners at the firm that I would, we wouldn't talk to the other, we didn't need to announce that I was leaving, but I would just kind of slowly tone it back and help with clients. But that gave me room to do retreats. So I signed up for three retreats an Ayurvedic Panchakarma, which is an ancient ancient um, Indian medicine is the best way I can put it. And I don't fully understand all the things that they, that they did at that retreat, but it was very elevating. That's the best way I would put it. At the Ayurvedic Center in New Mexico, Dr. Laud. And it's, it's known as being kind of one of the best 
Ayurvedic centers in the U.S. And it's also known for helping this Panchakarma process is known for elevating consciousness and kind of purifying the body. So I did that in February, took a week off of retreat, then went on a six-night silent meditation retreat with a woman named Mukti, who is Adyashanti, who's he's a spiritual teacher, his wife. They're both teachers. And I'd never done extended meditation before. So that was that was a big experience for me. There weren't many people there. Silent meditation means no even gesturing to other people there. The only time you could talk potentially is when the teacher, in this case Mukti, was giving a talk and would do question and answer, like a, a traditional satsang basically. And I wasn't even asking questions. And maybe the first day I did, but I was, I was silent the whole time. And during that retreat, I began to feel energy for the first time. Because I'd read about people feeling energy, especially a lot on Buddha at the gas pump. And I didn't not believe in it, but it was just never experiential for me. And all of a sudden, maybe the third day of the retreat in meditation, just sitting in the meditation room, I started to feel energy flowing kind of in my crown area. That's what I, I guess the crown chakra is the name of it. But in the head, I felt it. And then I started to feel throbbing in my forehead, like in between the eyebrows. And then I'm looking around because we were in a Buddhist retreat center, even though the retreat wasn't Buddhist itself. And I saw statues of people with a dot on their third eye. And I said, oh my goodness, that's what I'm feeling. This thing that people have been talking about, I get it now. That's a real thing. And now it's something that I, I feel all the time. But before it was, I don't know, I just didn't really click for me. So I started to have experiences like that and feeling energy throughout the body. And other times I didn't feel that much. But the last few days of the retreat, and this is the critical part, I started to get a lot of insights for this book to the point where I missed one of the lectures, Mukti's lectures, because I wanted to be out in nature and write stuff down. I was sitting in bed one night and I couldn't sleep because I like almost sentences were coming in of what I was going to be writing. So I was able to outline a lot of this book at the retreat for probably the last two days is when most of it came in. And then I, I drove home because this was in Northern California near Santa Cruz and I live in San Francisco and sat down to write. And actually the synchronicity with my former tennis teammate that I ran into, I mentioned it in the book where the name of my podcast is the song that he walked down the aisle to on his wedding day to, with his wife. Like it was a weird synchronicity. I ran into him the night before I started writing right after I got back from the tree. And then I sat down and wrote for seven days straight and finished the first draft. And then right after that, I went on the third retreat which was Adyashanti's five-night silent meditation retreat, where I was able to think about the book and then come back to it, uh, having thought about it extensively, was able to edit it for about a week. And I mean, the book didn't change that much in terms of the content, but there were a few things that I massaged and it's the typical process. I mean, even the first book, there were things that I, I, I changed around a little bit and then said, wait a second, I, this, is, this book's done. Like, I'm gonna send it to, to my publisher. So I sent it to him, I think a week after I got back from the second retreat. And the timing is interesting. The second meditation retreat ended on March 6th. So this is all pre-COVID, like pre-really serious COVID. And that's what's interesting to me is that I felt this urgency to write the book at the end of February. And I didn't, I didn't understand exactly why, other than I had to finish it. There was just no choice. And some of my friends were like, were asking me, what, why do you, you don't have to do this. You're, you're like transitioning out of your job. You have time. And I was saying, no, I've got to finish this right now. And then I'm going to go on the retreat and I'm going to think about it and I'm going to edit it and I want to be done with this. And then COVID hits. And the book I think is, is relevant to what's happening with COVID and, and riots, just everything in the world. So there was an urgency from the perspective of helping to elevate consciousness that, that propelled me, I think, to write it more quickly than I needed to potentially, or maybe I did need to write it quickly. So I, so anyway. A week after I get back from this final retreat, I send it to the publisher. He reads it. 
the next morning after a few hours calls me and says, this is ready to publish. So, and he says, I'm going to, he emails the editor because we just get an editor to make sure it's all good. He was ready to go. So my publisher read the book, I think on a Saturday, the editor was free, which was for the last book. The editor was not free immediately. He was free that Monday. So he was able to go through the whole book then I was able to look at it. And then we had a second editor come in just to make sure there are no mistakes the next week. And we got the Kindle version out on end of April, like last week of April is when the Kindle came out. And that's when the book was done. The hardcovers come out end of June and same with Audible. Actually, I recorded the Audible yesterday. So that's, that was the writing process. That's amazing. Yeah, that, that's really amazing. And, and thank you, by the way, for sending me the Kindle version. I know I told you that I, I bought the Audible. I hadn't realized that you hadn't even recorded it <laughs> when I purchased it, but I knew it'd come out in June. The problem with COVID is that the studios have been closed. So I happened to be actually out of town, out of San Francisco in an area where there was a studio open. So that was an interesting synchronicity too, because otherwise, if I, if I were in the Bay Area right now, I don't know when I'd be able to record the Audible. It might be months. Yeah, that timeline and that sequence of, of events is really remarkable. Writing on a silent retreat is permitted with, with Mukti. I know some teachers forbid even that. Yes. Yes. So the, the rules were no gesturing other than during satsang question and answer and no reading or any content other than the kind of one pager on meditation. And there was an introduction from Mukti, but you were allowed to have a journal. Wow. That's perfect. That's really, that's really beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing that. Let me ask you for a moment about your podcast. We've touched on it a few times, but I like your podcast a lot. And I like how you have the back and forth with, I think his name is Matt. Is that right? Your producer, which as I understand was also a synchronicity to connect with him and make that happen. That, I mean, that one was pretty crazy too. So th- I'll tell the story because it's, it, it, the way my life has unfolded is actually some of the best evidence for me that like that I, cause I'm not, I'm not doing this in many cases. It's, it's coming to me. I was thinking about ways of getting the message out when I first got uh, signed with my agent. And this was back in 2017 because he said, look, Mark, it doesn't matter how good your book is actually, because the way the publishing world works is you need to have a presence. Otherwise, the message doesn't get out. Good content is good, but having a big presence is important. So start to think about ways of doing that. And this is when I had, I didn't even have a website yet. So the first thing that came to mind is to do a podcast because that's how I learned a lot. I mean, podcasts changed my life. I was able to, with no cost, hear from people all over the world that had these experiences or were scientists. So I wanted to do that in my own way. And I was thinking about anyone that I knew in media, and most of my network is in finance or consulting, just kind of more of the business world. But I had one friend from high school who was two years below me, but we were buddies and I hadn't talked to him in years. He's done lots of TV shows, works mostly on sports, like has done shows for Fox Sports, but mostly in that world. And I happened to text him and say, hey man, do you know anything about podcasts? And he says, you're not going to believe this. I just gave notice to my TV show that I'm leaving for the biggest podcast producer. So he was going to be joining this podcast firm where he learned all about podcasts. And then we stayed in touch while he was there and brainstormed and ultimately came out with this series where it's not just me interviewing people like we're doing here. What what Matt said to me is he's like, Mark, you can do that, but there are a lot of people doing that. It's a much more difficult space. And for the message you're trying to get across, there are more effective ways. And I was really resistant to that at first because I, in 2017, I wanted to get this out. That's a common theme for me. I, like, I'm just ready to get things out when I have an idea. I wanted to start interviewing people and putting it, the content out. And he urged me to wait. And I did. I listened to him. So the, the way we did the series is that I conducted 50 interviews 
all over Skype, recorded them. Most of them are about an hour, hour plus, and they're available on my website for subscription. But we use clips from the interviews, and these are scientists and also spiritual people who've had experiences themselves. We use those clips in a narrative. So I wrote a script, basically, where I'm talking to my producer, who is newer to these concepts, Matt, who's most of his career has been in sports, and he's saying, well, explain to me telepathy. What's that? And then I'm like, well, I interviewed Dr. Dean Radin and he, and then we take a clip from my interview. So that became a very creative process itself, not unlike book writing, actually more multidimensional because we had music. There, There's just different aspects to creating content with a podcast. And that came out in 2019. It's eight episodes. Yeah. I, any podcast that uses music and uses sound effects, you know, thoughtfully with what you've done, interspersing the back and forth with a complimentary voice, but different positions like, you know, where you both have a view of skepticism, but he's also got this sense of like a true beginner's mind because he hasn't been exposed to a lot of these things. And, and I think, I think that works really well. So I know a lot of people listening to this who aspire to write a book, you know, they also aspire to give a TED talk or do a podcast or do other things as well. So I thought that that might be uh, valuable for people to hear, you know, how you approach that and and not just having, you know, and why you didn't choose to just do another interview, you know, series. Which for some people might be the right way to go. But I think for this content, Matt was completely right. And I never could have envisioned the way this worked out. And because of his relationship with this other production firm, Cadence 13, they're one of the leading podcast production companies. They do Pod Save America and some really big shows. They were they were our partner, and and so that that helped a lot, and that was beyond what I could have imagined. Um, so I think each it depends on the individual and what you're trying to accomplish. And I think with everything I've done, whether it's writing or podcast or whatever I end up doing, it's to me it's not about writing. It's not about doing a podcast. It's about having something to say. And there happens to be the medium of writing or podcasting. To me, it was never about, hey, I want to be an author. I want to be a podcast host. It started with a passion for something that I wanted to communicate. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. What have you learned about getting your message out into the world now about telling people, about making them aware, making them interested, you know, attracting them to it? What have, what have you learned about marketing and promotions? It's difficult. I think difficult for a number of reasons. One is it's a competitive space now. There are lots of people trying to get a message out and there are a limited number of platforms that most people tune into. So it's hard to get people's attention and especially being someone new to a space. It's just like, who's this guy? Who's, he's not a scientist. And, and I think there's, there's just some resistance to that, just being new. And even though I worked with multiple publicists with my first book, I, I ended up interviewing on probably in the neighborhood of 150 plus shows between radio and podcast and some TV. So I tried to get the message out there a lot and it, it helped somewhat. But what I found is that there are some forms of media that are more impactful than others in terms of numbers. Like that's one way to measure impact. Another way would be if someone's life is shifted in a positive direction, one person, you could say that's impact. But if we want to look kind of like at quantitative measures, we could look at book sales the week following an interview, for example. And there are, cert there are definitely certain platforms I found where there are spikes more so than others. So that was interesting for me to learn. I didn't, that wasn't something I anticipated. Yeah, there that makes sense. Big, yeah, some just have larger audiences. And then other times the audience might be smaller, but it might be more concentrated in terms of people that will really resonate. So those actually might be more impactful than the ones that are high volume in terms of sales. So that those are things for, I think, any content producer to think about. And then also the content that I'm 
putting out there is very controversial. It's going against what many scientists believe to be true. And in fact, there's real resistance to it. I mean, many, like I've talked about this in my books and the podcast, people will leave academia to even feel open enough to talk about the topics because it's so shunned. And that's, that's what I'm talking about. So certain platforms will not even go here. And I'll give one example. I won't mention the name, but a, a prominent scientific platform, I will just say, refused to read my book when my publicist sent information, even sent some of the scientific papers, basically said, look, I've spent 30 years in scientific journalism. This is a prominent guy. And unless that time was spent in delusion, there's no reality to any of this. I'm not looking at it. And so that's just, I think, emblematic of some of the resistance that I face, I think, and other people face. And I don't know what that means in terms of difficulty of getting the message out. It might be that certain larger platforms would do a story if I were talking about something less controversial. But because it's controversial, it's not okay for platforms X, Y, and Z. That again, you know, it's it's not surprising to me, but I do find it somewhat disappointing. What was that? I forget that debate. I think it was with Bill Nye and that question, you know, when you're confronted with evidence that counters, you know, that contradicts what you currently believe. Like when I, I changed my mind, what do you do? <laughs> do you remember that whole thing? It's like nothing. So anyway, yeah, facts and data aren't, ne- aren't necessarily enough. That That has surprised me, Brian, though. It really has. The, the lack of openness from some people to not even explore because the data contradicts a worldview and therefore that data can't be correct. It's, it's kind of an anti-scientific perspective, ironically. Exactly. Exactly. I want to ask you about your involvement now. I understand you're, you're involved with some, with some organizations that, that are, you know, involved in the same kinds of things that you're, that you're involved with, like IONS. I understand you're on the board now. Is that is that right? That's pretty cool. Con- congrats on that. That's a that's a neat organization. And you're again, you're a pretty young guy to <laughs> make make the ranks w- there. And and I forget what the something is being created. I want to say like in North Carolina or something. Yes, the School of Wholeness and Enlightenment, and that's in the early stages. But we're hoping that it will be a very successful spiritual education platform. That's awesome. But it'll be a physical like a retreat center or some kind yes. of. A- Yes. That's great. But it hasn't been built yet. So this is very early days. That's awesome. Well, cool. Well, what what else what would you leave our listeners with in terms of encouragement, advice, anything like that that might serve them as they work to complete and share, you know, whatever it is they're working on or to deliver the message that they have to share with people? Well, I've touched on the topic of authenticity, and that to me is one of the most important things that I've I've really kind of internalized recently. And authenticity now for me takes on a different meaning than it used to. Now I view it as embodying, essentially, whatever it is that we are here to do, even if we don't understand what that is, sort of embodying the stream while in the whirlpool. When we do that properly, we feel authentic. And so what I, what I try to do in life now is, is things that do not feel like rat poison, but rather feel like they're flowing and they feel authentic to me, where I feel like I'm being myself without restriction while still following values and all that. But but being in that mode I think is critical for content creation because then we're not going we're not going to hit up against walls in the same way if we're being our true self. And that's what I found especially with the second book because also it wasn't as scientific so I didn't have to cite everything every 2 seconds like with the first book which was just almost you know every other sentence was being cited. I was able to flow with my writing because I felt very authentic in the writing process. And I'm sure that was helped by the fact that I had 
given notice about my job, so I felt more authentic anyway. And I was just coming off a six-night silent meditation retreat, so I was probably tapped into something, and I had just done an Ayurvedic cleanse. So I was like, it was, again, a perfect storm. But the feeling of authenticity of this is just natural, I'm not, I'm not resisting anything here, that enabled me to, I think, for the book to go as smoothly as it did. And that happened a bit with the first book. It happened with the podcast for sure. And that was an interesting process because it was collaborative with my producers, where we would be kind of jointly in flow together and episodes would just come out, the scripts would come out right, and we would, all of a sudden the episode was done. Uh, but it was, it was a feeling of authenticity. And that's what I would leave your listeners with. Awesome. Thank you. As a way of saying thank you for sharing your time and, and your wisdom and your experience with me and everybody listening, I have made a microloan on your behalf using kiva.org. It's to an entrepreneur in Costa Rica named Soraya. She's 51 years old. She's married with children, and she's going to use this money to buy fertilizer that will help her maintain her coffee crop. So in some small way, I like to think this conversation is helping people beyond even those who are listening to it. Wonderful. Thank you for doing that. And thank you. Thank you for having me, Brian, and for all the amazing work you're doing. Well, I, I sure love to hear your journey, you know, in some ways it parallels mine, but as I mentioned, yours is very concentrated in, you know, and I love that too. And the fact that we can all choose a different path at any time, you know, that's a big, that's a big theme of obviously what the work I do with coaching and helping people. So there's a lot in what you're doing that really, that I really love. And I don't know what's next for me. Well, I'm glad I didn't ask then. (laughs) I don't even know what's next, but I, I say that to to again reinforce the topics we've talked about of this kind of state of surrender and, and not knowing and not being attached to a certain future. Yeah, oh, that's, that's, that's great. If people want to learn more from you or they want to stay connected with you, what would you have them do? My website is a good place to start and it's my name, markgober.com. And that has more information on my book and my podcast. But I think the podcast is a good intro to the topics if you're commuting or in transit, that's an easy way to learn about some of the science. And I, the reason I like to start with the science in all of this is that it, it gives, a, I think, much more of a solid base for these more practical principles. And that's how my mind has worked, is to solidify the reality of this paradigm. That's not what most of science is teaching. And once one accepts that alternative paradigm, then these concepts like surrender and authenticity take on new meanings. And that's when I think our lives can transform. Awesome. Okay. In the podcast, I don't know that we said the name. Where is my mind? Right. So to make sure people know, Mark's podcast is Where Is My Mind? And it's available on all the platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the major players. Awesome. Okay. Well, with that, we'll wrap up and I will let you know when we will release this. Again, I heard you say, so the Kindle version is available now, but the Audible and the the physical book will, will launch later this month. Is that right? Yes. Late June. June 23rd. Okay. Well, thanks so much. I hope you stay safe and and healthy there in Palm Desert. Yes. All right. All right, man. We'll take care. I'll see you later. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones. There's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. 
If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com. 